0: Matt, I have good news for you, because there is, in fact, a fantastic tabletop RPG that is science fiction and has a built-in critique of late-stage neoliberal capitalism. Is that right? Oh, oh, baby, I'm talking about mothership. The synthesis of the the universe, philosophy, and
1: philosophy. Mothership, the game that we've played a few times now, and I got saddled with playing a, an awful character named Borbo Squigonards.
0: Yeah, you made that character. I yeah, I, where, made it, I made, made it, it as a th-
1: throwaway because I thought we were just going to fuck around for like one day with the system. Let him die. It's a... The high
0: lethality game
1: yeah okay you say it's a high lethality game but no one has died yet
0: that's true that's true people did almost die in the first maybe it's because
1: there we have too many people playing so it's like they're soaking up all the threat you know what i mean well
0: this is i i think i'll get into i I, maybe i'll explain why i think not that many people have died in ours so far because i have i have a few thoughts about how that is and a lot of it has to do with how i'm running it as a game master and as i'm trying to learn the system
1: you're a pussy is what it is
0: But maybe it would be helpful for our listeners, some of whom have not played Mothership, or others who maybe want to reminisce about the Mothership they've played. Can you tell us about the game, Matt?
1: Uh, I don't know why you picked me to talk about this.
0: Well, I don't know, because you're the other person on the podcast.
1: Yeah, but I feel like you sh- you're fucking running the game. You know what to say.
0: Look, this is the this is the thing that my favorite thing to do on this podcast is ask you something and then complain put, when you got put it wrong. It's stupid. Okay.
1: okay. Yeah, mother, <laughs> I mean it's a great game. It's a little bit like flavor-wise. It's sort of like alien aliens mm-hmm. that sort of vibe, although it's not all yeah. Alien based. In fact, we haven't actually encountered an alien yet, have we?
0: I mean well, there was like a, a there was like
1: an alien fungus type thing, but that wasn't not really what I not really what I meant.
0: Maybe. Is that an alien thing or is it something else?
1: Oh, is that a question for me? Like, I don't
0: know. Well we'll we'll get to, we'll get well, to we, it.
1: Well we we didn't analyze it correctly, did we? Well whatever. Anyway, so it's alien vibe. We are with a corporation where we came up with a name, I believe. I uh, wasn't in the supplement. It's called Vikram. And we mm-hmm. are...
0: Vikram Corporation.
1: The first mission we did was to go to an... It was like a derelict spacecraft that had long ago been stranded in space. What was the incentive to going to that, Joe?
0: Vikram Corporation had proprietary technology and had right. hired you all to go out and investigate because they wanted the technology back. And so Mike is playing one of the androids who works for Vikram. It's like was made by Vikram is a total shill for the corporation and has been sent to retrieve the information on this proprietary technology that was lost. And then you all will get paid to do so. Right. If you get the technology back.
1: So my character Borbo is like a ship sort of scientist for the ship that Vikram Corporation (laughs) hired to go to the derelict spacecraft to investigate along with some military personnel who I guess are probably, um, I, I don't remember, are they, they're probably like Vikram soldiers, right? They probably work for the corporation.
0: They're so they're technically they're, they're, I think Marines is what they're called, um, or like military personnel, but they get hired on or, or leased out by the military for the, the corporation. Now in the rule book, there are actually rules about, whether you're doing missions for the military or for the corporation or for like freelance, um, that actually like it tells you what they'll pay for and what they won't. We did not have that supplement when we started playing. So we just kind of improvised.
1: Well, anyway, so, I mean, basically, <laughs> there's a there's a website we were using that handled mm-hmm. almost all of the rolling for us. We would just yeah. plug in numbers that made it likelier as we failed that bad things would happen, if I recall yes. correctly. And, uh, yeah, it's supposed to be a high lethality game, so it gives off that aura of, oh, it's really easy to, you know, if I make a few bad rolls, I'll acquire these sort of mm-hmm. higher point totals and the, and yeah. I'll, fail, keep, I'll, I'll keep failing. It's like exponential failure mm-hmm. rate. Yeah. Um, so the
0: the couple of mechanics that make that happen are as you play you accumulate stress and the entire game is a roll under mechanic. You have to roll the dice and you want to get under whatever your score is, right? Is
1: So is it just that failures add points so it makes it harder to roll under?
0: Yeah, exactly. Oh, so okay. well, no no no. So <laughs> why did you say under, exactly? <laughs> Cuz I was wrong. Oh, I misspoke. Okay. Rolling under so you have skills that are all in deep percentile. So you're like 75% good at Xenobiology or whatever. So funtology. <laughs> um, xeno-esotericism oh
1: god! Xenoesotericism,
0: which is my favorite skill in the whole game. And, and I can't wait to use it. That you have the percentage that you're good at that. And then you have to roll under that. For stress, it's the same thing, sort of, except rolling under means things get worse. Um, I see. so when you have to roll under your, when you have to roll, you want to roll over your stress, but if you've accumulated more stress, that means that it's harder to roll over. You're more likely to roll under and then bad things can happen. And each of the characters, and so stress comes when you fail rolls. So you're like trying to hack into the, the doors before like the, the enemy, like ghost holograms get you. And you fail, you accumulate stress, and uh, or when just like random things happen that you like see something scary, the game master is just like, well, you take stress because this is spooky and you weren't expecting it, and it freaks you out, and so you accumulate stress, and then your other players, other characters have some cor- some kind of like passive ability that hurts everyone around them. So like if a if a Marine has to make a panic check, has to roll yes. to see if they panic. Oh my God. They force And they fail. Everyone else takes stress. I think was what it was.
1: I don't remember the one on Michael's character, but I remember it was especially egregious. Uh-huh.
0: Is that we, you took disadvantage on all panic checks because androids made you feel, it, they gave you the willies.
1: Is that right? Well, they do give me the <laughs> yeah. willies. I'll tell you that much.
0: And so, so basically the way the game works is like most, so you think of like Dungeons and Dragons, right? Fifth edition, especially- is really designed as heroic fantasy. You're all heroes. You're really powerful. And Mothership is, des- is designed that you are not heroes. You are the worst of the worst. You are like super weak and basically at the mercy of these giant corporations or these military industrial complex that sends you out on these dangerous missions. And like like half of your abilities do not help you survive. They make it harder and harder and harder. So it gives the game this feeling of horror oh shit like if something bad happens it's just gonna keep getting worse
1: well i I did nearly die so i remember in the first session like i opened just a door and i think i got shot by a turret or something like that and it i was like within an inch of dying just from opening a door so Mm -hmm. it does seem like a pretty brutal game um but you said you had a hypothesis as to why we aren't yeah suffering more is it it's your fault
0: in the first adventure, people came way closer to death. I mean, Max had 20 stress, which is the highest stress that you can have. Before, before dying. Um, no, you don't die. What it is is that you, I think if I remember correctly, you start losing points on like other abilities Yeah. once your stress hits 20, and you can never pass a stress check. So you're always failing the stress checks if you have to make one, and then... Things just, things just continue to get worse and they'll get worse every single time if anything else stressful happens. And you almost died when you got shot by the turret. And what had happened was they got to the ship and there were these weird ghostly holograms walking around, but they were malfunctioning. Right. And so they would like throw chairs at people or they would like, like their heads would pop off or they'd become disemboweled or one of them like touched somebody and it like gave them a chill. So doing all these like freaky things... They were like reversing gravity and like turning, like magnetizing things and shit, and it was like freaky.
1: It was freaky. I'll give you that.
0: the uh, The crew that was that was exploring this and looking for the technology. Realized well. You tell me, Matt. What did you realize? What was happening?
1: Well, I didn't realize anything because Daniel and I fled the ship on our our spaceship and left everyone to die. But we came back. We came back.
0: <laughs> they came back at the last minute. Well, they realized, well, apparently yes,
1: Daniel DM'd you and said, "Can we blow up the ship?" And you said, "No."
0: <laughs> I said you could, but that's fucked up. <laughs> oh, is that what you said, Dan? Well, I, I did actually. not say don't. I said you. I didn't say he couldn't. I might have said, "Don't do that." That's classic, Daniel. It is. <laughs> um, well, also, we I had pitched this as a one shot what I'd said was we'll do a one shot of Mothership and if we yeah. like it we'll play again but after we played like everybody was really excited to it's play fun. again it's so a we'll fun it kind of
1: vibe you know it is
0: well especially for for our group that you know we play a lot of RPGs often and so And I think this game is fun because there's so much failure. Yeah. It was um, like that that was part of the fun and it's build is that. So failure doesn't feel as frustrating.
1: Right. right? And I mean, we are used to playing a lot of games where failure is really sidelined. Like Max was telling me that he's running the Icewind Dale thing, Uh the the 5E supplement, whatever. And he was remarking, maybe it's the size of our group in part, but it's just really hard to balance these enemies. So they're not a total cakewalk at the level we're at. We're like level three still. But Mm -hmm. we've been steamrolling everything with maybe one or two exceptions Mm -hmm. just because, yeah, we have a lot of people and it's low level, but it's just still you want a little resistance. But it's obvious Mm -hmm. that the game at that point doesn't really privilege hardcore resistance.
0: Yeah. So that's yeah. And that's that's good to know. And that's the thing that happens in 5e. And especially if you have a lot of people and then you just bump up the number of enemies like combat just takes so long yeah, to yeah, get through. Yeah, yeah. Enemies health
1: pool, like what do you do, you know? Yeah.
0: Much faster in Mothership. The combat is really speedy, partly cuz there's not as much to do in combat. Like you say, "Oh, I shoot them, you roll like twice and then that's resolved." Um, but what it, what the the backstory was and they they discovered is that the proprietary technology was a special um cryo sleep chamber so while people were on really long space voyages they're in the cryo sleep chambers and the the cryo sleep chambers would project it was it's like some combination of like electromagnetic waves and holograms and stuff and the module explains it's the ghost ship from dissident whispers if anyone's looking for it and so that was projecting these holograms that also had the ability to emit like different electromagnetic pulses and the ma- holograms were malfunctioning. There had been almost a mutiny or they, when the Android who was from the corporation right. basically forced everyone into the cryo chambers, like some tried to resist and one got his arm chopped off. And so his hologram had the arm chopped off. And one of the other holograms was like trying to help him, but it couldn't because it was malfunctioning. Phantom and, limb. And so it was like it was like a, it's like sci-fi ghost story, super cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, reflective of you know this company that's like developed this new technology to squeeze every ounce of labor and utility out of their
1: their workers, their people. That like yeah. even
0: while you're sleeping in cryo sleep, we like we want you to be productive. And of course, they downloaded all the files, all the information, all the data about the the cryo chambers, how the experiment had worked, what had gone wrong, etc. They beat the android that had. That had trapped the rest of the crew there, and then accidentally had had like shot the warp core that would allow them to do a hyperspace jump. And so the ship was going to explode. And so the final scene, it was very exciting. They were like dashing through the chambers. They were trying to save some of the crew that was in the cryosleep chambers. And I was like, You've only got time to save two, so you pick which two people you want to save. And so like, "Well, who, what's this person like?" Da da da. And I was like, "At yeah, time's running out, they ran away." Daniel and Matt's characters had ditched them, Vic and, like, and left with the ship. <laughs> Vic and Borbo. Yeah, we love. But then they came around just at the last second, uh, sent like a or received them in an escape pod, and. They climbed aboard just as the ship exploded, and that was the adventure. And so it was tense. People came close to death. People were very stressed, and it had a really exciting like. Who doesn't love ending a space TTRPG with the, the spaceship blowing up?
1: Yeah, a spaceship blowing up. Everyone's trapped in an escape pod. You don't know if you'll live, and then the and then the heroes, Vic and borbo saved them it was perfect it was just like han solo and Chewie coming back for luke skywalker
0: you know as we're talking about like science fiction and from mothership it's clear that the corporation vikram corporation in this story like really gives zero shits about their employees if anything may actively be trying to they give zero shits about anything <laughs> may actively be trying to kill one of them <clears throat> cody
1: yeah well i also tried to kill cody to be fair <laughs>
0: To be fair, to be fair, what is like? I would have thought that much like the utopia presented by Star Trek, technology would lead to this utopia, you know, luxury gay space communism. Oh
1: yeah, that old that old chestnut.
0: Why why do they not have luxury gay space communism in in mothership? Like, what could have possibly gone wrong?
1: <laughs> well, there's a lot of different ways to think about this. I mean, the in previous episodes we've talked about the sort of. Um, Vaguely Hegelian, vaguely Marxist too, uh, view that history is a progression from a certain initial starting point, perhaps to, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe there's like intermediary stages that aren't really that good, yeah uh, or bad, but eventually we'll wind up with something desirable. Like this is Hegel's view, yeah. except in an intellectualist mm-hmm. line. Marx's view is more, you know, in an economic. Vane eventually mm-hmm. will wind up with something desirable. And Fukuyama, too, has the same sort of view, except for him, it was neoliberalism was the best that we were going to get. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess he thought that was a good thing. But
0: yeah. So check out check out our episodes on the end of history and one D&D if you want to know what the fuck Matt's talking. That's about. right. We're not going to pause for you here, you <laughs> dumbass. So, I mean, we are also
1: uh, about to do, we might record it today, we might not, but an episode on eschatology, which is about the end of times, uh, without getting into that content, there is this sort of Christian view that mm-hmm. history is a, is a line or a linear progression through some, some bad times to an ultimately desirable, I guess, state, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, oh, if you're a if you're a Christian, it's desirable. If you're not, apparently you're going to burn in a fiery yeah. pit. If you're not, you're, you're fucked. totally fucked. So I mean, it depends on your perspective. So
0: repent, motherfuckers. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, but not everyone, <laughs> not everyone agrees with this.
0: Yeah, some people are Satanists. Some people are Satanists. Who th- they worship the devil. Worship
1: the devil. That's right. And uh, shout out to Satanists, but <laughs> but um. So you, you asked me if I had any like philosophical cuts to bring to bear on this episode.
0: And I did. I did. I really pressured you into this. You, I was like, make it
1: fit. Matt. Make it fit. And, you know, I'm not a scholar of technology and we talked with Faraz about modern developments, but I did think yes. of the famous Heidegger book sort of like lecture series, I think, called The Question Concerning Technology. Mm which is his critique of modern, or perhaps not so modern, technology. And we should again uh, remind our listeners that Heidegger is, was a member of the Nazi party, so it's not like he's coming at this critique from a progressive angle, but mm-hmm. many progressive thinkers have found something to his view, including you know, very influential uh, critical theory people like Horkheimer, it's worth thinking about, even if we don't want to like yeah. mainline all of Hider's views.
0: Yeah. So I, I think that this is this is a good point to bring up, and and we want to talk. We want to do a whole episode on death of the author in the future, and like, well, what do you do with people who were problematic but have produced things like seminal that works. we either enjoy? <clears throat> avatar too for example $80. and if you didn't and if you don't have if you're not subscribed on Patreon you won't get this joke because we talked about it in the Patreon cut.
1: We had a, our Patreon cut had a fabulous 20 minute review of Avatar had 2.
0: A, <laughs> exactly and the problems associated with it. Here you are thinking it's all hunky dory no. but if you paid 2 dollars a month then you would know it's if not. If you paid
1: 2 dollars <laughs> you would hear Joe's critical views on Avatar 2 but if you didn't pay you'll hear me <laughs> saying it's the best movie of all yeah. time.
0: If you pay, if you pay two dollars on Patreon, will will ruin. I'll ruin something that you enjoy. Not
1: me. I love so, it. I'm there, baby. Um,
0: so, uh, oh. So all this to say that we want we want to dive into what do we do with things that people like that we enjoy or get some value out of, um, and can even develop like pr- progressive thought based on some of the things that somebody like Heidegger has has come up with. But, it, like, what do you what do you do with this? And so. We just want to be sensitive to that now with the, you know, delayed promise of eventually producing content that will address this more.
1: Eventually we'll do something that isn't problematic, but until then,
0: everything we do is problematic.
1: I know We're, (laughs) we're, we're very edgy, but anyway,
0: yeah, edgy and problematic. Same, same thing. Well,
1: being edgy usually suffices to make something that I think most people would, would say is problematic. But something can be problematic without that's being fair. edgy. There you go.
0: Yeah. And I think you could be edgy without being problematic.
1: I, well, I, I agree. But I think there are. Maybe. I, I, I'm inclined to agree. But I, I think most of the things that people think of as being edgy tend toward being problematic or whatever. But not.
0: I think this is a really good time to pause for 20 minutes and talk about an ontology of edgelords.
1: An ontology of edging.
0: An into- not of edging. Uh, that's a different thing.
1: Okay. Well,
0: of edginess, uh,
1: we'll keep it in mind. But it's not time to talk. <laughs> it's not time to talk about that. <laughs> you disagree? I disagree because I have nothing to contribute to this. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, other than being edgy so, myself.
0: So tell us more about Heidegger and his thoughts on technology. Yeah.
1: So the question concerning technology is like a late Heidegger work after what's called the the I think it's K E H R E the turn the turning of his thought where he decided mm-hmm. that he had been. Thinking about things in an in unsatisfactory way in his early work, which includes like being in time, which is one probably his most famous book,
0: hmm. and but does not include being a Nazi. Is that correct? Being
1: a Nazi is not part of. Well, I mean, there are definitely. So
0: he was a Nazi, and he didn't think that was a
1: problem. He did, no, he was a. He's very. Uh, he he said he talked about like the inner truth and greatness of being a Nazi. So I mean, it's a whole. Oh, great. ever since. Like, so, after his early work and late work, too, many people, like, wrangled over, well, to what degree was he just, like, yeah, this is the death of the author question, but, like, to what degree yeah. was he just a bad judge of politics, but it doesn't really matter for the content of his work? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, the last – I don't remember when, but his diaries were published recently it's called The Black Books. They're, like – Diary the, in a thin sense
0: that doesn't sound good. Well, they're called the black books because <laughs> That's they're not what you, they're
1: bound in like black leather or something. You know that
0: oh, not black. I'm gonna like say the, if they if they were like
1: like the Nefernalicon like, wow, or something. Nazis
0: are terrible. You wouldn't call them the black books. It's a very sinister well, name. No, for yeah. A, so
1: I mean, it's like way for a book
0: repudiating Nazism. It's,
1: it's like way worse. Like it's very anti-Semitic stuff in there. Apparently, like, I, I oh, haven't read them, but uh, I'm told that the content makes untenable mm-hmm. the view that like we can have a really simple divide between uh like the work he produced and his political mistakes basically Mm -hmm. anyway
0: yeah and and it's important to acknowledge that because i think i think people have this weird thing about when something is called out as being problematic so like lord of the rings for example and we want to do a whole episode about this i love lord of the rings i fucking love these movies so fucking much do you like the books i love tolkien i think they're fantastic I love them so much. You all you all know I have the lore. I know about the language Westron, which nobody Yo, knows. No, the
1: Bilbo this- Labengi? <laughs> Bilbo Labengi? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bilbo Labengi! And so, like, I'm, I'm in this shit. I love Tolkien. Yep. And I can recognize that when he wrote that the orcs were based on those horrid Mongol types, that's fucked up. You know, I had and, a friend... And so, like, I had a
1: friend who agrees that the orcs are uh like a racist depiction but his view was that Mm -hmm. they're more and i I don't because i would have to think about like the content of why he thought this but like the way they're depicted he saw as more of a like a critique not a critique but like a antipathy toward middle eastern islamic invasions of the western world versus Uh what, what other people would be like oh people will think it's like um some other kind of racism. It was like, no, it's more entrenched with C- mm-hmm. Tolkien's Catholicism, maybe, you know, like his aversion to the, yeah. the, the conqueror from the, from the Orient, you know? <laughs>
0: yes. Yes. So I would have, cause I would have put that more squarely on the Haradrim, which are, it's certainly in the movies portrayed in kind of like a vaguely Middle Eastern yeah. style. Wait,
1: are those the, like they're allied with Mordor, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. They're
0: the humans al- allied with Mordor who bring the Oliphants. That's interesting. I mean... Also known as Momokil.
1: Prob- there's probably like a whole... I, I don't, I'm sure this shit's been written about this. There's probably a interesting thing mm-hmm. to be... There's, there's something to be said about this, but I digress.
0: Yes. So, all this to say, we can look at this work and say, oh, this was problematic, and you can... St- there are certain things that you could like get out of it and enjoy and say, oh, well, like this is problematic... And I really like this idea that ordinary people doing good things is what makes the world a better place. Which is, you know, in a lot of ways, the idea behind these stories of hobbits, which are like the nobodies of middle age, going and changing the world. Um, So, like, I I get how people can say that. And people have this weird thing that they're like, oh, well, I can't like anything that's problematic. So everything I like must be, like, 100% perfect. And then they'll be like, well, I like this thing Heidegger said. So he can't be a Nazi. No, fuck that. (laughs) He was a fucking Nazi and maybe said something that we can then like he was right about something and we can use that in and do this critique of, of, I don't even know what he says because I keep interrupting. That's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, I mean, what I was going to point out is, so this, the
0: question concerning. And speaking of pointing things out, Matt, I just want to take a second.
1: Was, that a, Just was kidding. that a little goof? Okay. It was a bit. It was a bit,
0: The audience is rolling on the floor laughing at this right now.
1: I bet they are. I
0: mean, I hope not if they're driving.
1: Well, so the, the, the question concerning technologies from the later stuff, which a lot of people yeah. see as being, wor- at best unclear and at worst mystical garbage my favorite
0: kind of garbage
1: Uh, so well so my my opinion is there's a lot of interesting content there but it's uh, it's very unclear because he comes to think of like Mm. the only possible way of doing philosophy in a non-dogmatic sense is like quasi poetic language or something so so basically the idea is the history of western thought from the time of plato onward and you know scholars of of the history of Western quote-unquote philosophy tend to think this is overly mm-hmm. simplified, but whatever. Um, obviously, it's going to be overly simplified because he's trying to tell some kind of narrative. Yeah. Is toward this sort of domination, dogmatic domination of being. Where being is almost like a sort of mysterious question mark word for him because the whole mm-hmm. of his thoughts oriented around the question of being. What is being? What is it to be? What's shared by beings, i.e. the idiosyncratic things that appear to us? in ordinary life. Like mm. what is being is a, is a big question. So we'll, we'll, yeah. u, we, we'll use this word philosophically being or beings or whatever. Uh, but uh-huh. what we mean by that is, is obscure, but we we'll, we should still be so, using it.
0: So I have a question yeah. here because, so I know that his question in his work is what is being yeah. like a being, but also like, I don't understand what you're taught. Like what, What's his starting point? Like, what is he looking at and saying, oh, we don't actually understand what this is? Like, is there like a definition of being that you could say, oh, this is what he starts with and eventually ends up somewhere else?
1: I would I would want to say that or what he's critiquing. The, if there is a starting point, it will be through looking at the history of thought and language and all of these things mm-hmm. rather than like, here's a definition. Because to define something is in a way to answer Or at least provide a tentative answer. Mm -hmm. So he wants to make mysterious in a way, once again, this question because he thinks that we've like taken for granted that there's no like deep question here and that we'll have all of these uh, like lower order questions about different types of beings Uh like, oh, what's the nature of this or that being, which is like Uh an onticle as he would call it question. Um, mm-hmm. but he's interested in the ontological question like the higher order question of the nature of being
0: all right so so let me see if i can i can i just want to wrap my head around this cuz i feel like i'm not going to understand the mystery here unless i understand what he's like talking about in the first no, place no
1: this is the whole problem
0: <laughs> i know so
1: you're one of these auto theologians who wants to dominate being
0: is he talking about like beings as oh human beings or things that exist like a being Like an alien could be a being, an animal is a being, a human is a being. But what does it mean to be a being, and what else should be included in that category? So
1: I should have said this, I guess, to start with. But you said what's a starting point? So I' talking about the history of philosophy. But
0: yeah, I don't know why.
1: Well, no, because that is what he wants.
0: (laughs) That's like that was that. That's what he wants
1: to look at. But he wants to look at the history Uh of. The investigation of being from the perspective of what he calls Dasein, which actually means something like existence in German. Mm-hmm. But he by Dasein, he means the being for whom being is a question, i.e. human beings, basically. Mm-hmm. So his starting point in being in time is like an investigation of Dasein and Dasein's relationship to yeah. what to its experience or whatever, which is why he's sometimes right. treated so, as an existentialist because he's interested in basically human the human being.
0: Got it. So – when Rene Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, he's also getting at the same question of being. I am, I'm a being, because I think. And that's, for him, the answer to this question of what it means to be a being. And Heidegger is problematizing. Yeah,
1: Heidegger wants to critique this sort of Cartesian view of the subject as this isolated, static thing that's independent of an Mm -hmm. objective world that it appropriates as its own. So Dasein Mm -hmm. is more like, being in the world, you know, it's embedded in the world in a in a with all of mm-hmm. these like affective and blah 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 other things. But this is all yeah. more of his early thought.
0: This is a good point because when Descartes says "I think, therefore I am," he's saying the only thing that makes me a being is my capacity for thought—that I am thinking. That you you literally has nothing to do with the rest of the in world in
1: Descartes' system of thought. You literally are a mental substance, a thinking thing. And that's it. Your body is something you control through the will or something or other. Mm -hmm. But you are a substance that thinks, a a mind, basically. Got it. This is not the view of of Heidegger.
0: No, he's he's looking at this question of being, which has been answered in different ways by different philosophers. Descartes is just like my example of a kind of a touchstone that people may be familiar with. Uh,
1: Um, A lot of people know that. And I think the something of the Cartesian view is something that we maybe as a function of our history i don't know find intuitive like we think of ourselves as these independent like agents yeah. you know what i mean
0: certain certainly in the in the united, yeah, in the united states united that states. tends to be like the individualist like framework of oh well i'm me and you're you <laughs> i pulled myself up by my bootstraps and i'm thinking and that's how i know that i exist and how i know i'm right right and who now, I,
1: I don't want to get too much into this other Heideggerian stuff, mostly because I can't, because I don't know okay. his early – I don't know I don't know him that well. I'm just trying to draw a line to the, the technology yeah. stuff. He's very critical of, of what he calls metaphysics. Um, metaphysics mm-hmm. is after after the physics, which is mm-hmm. Aristotle's physics. So, like, the way that the books were named, Aristotle's corpus, was like, okay, he has his books on the physics – And then there are these Mm -hmm. other books that come after the physics that are like higher order weird questions that try to tell you, like answer all these leftover puzzles or whatever. Um, So we're going to call them Mm -hmm. metaphysics because they're the books after the physics, right? Um, So metaphysics then comes to be this like special field of study. But he's critical of what he sees as this Western tradition of metaphysics, which is successive ways of trying to sort of dominate and control and appropriate being and beings. So uh-huh. beings are the thing like the individual idiosyncratic things that come to presence for us and they come to presence or manifest to us, right? They're, they're present to us. Like there's the computer right now is mm-hmm. present to me as a computer. Okay. They come, they present themselves always in the context of a certain horizon of, of, of presencing, right? It's like, okay, it's coming to presence for a human form of life with a spiritual, specific cultural heritage and all of these different things. Um, uh-huh. metaphysics is the attempt to reify that and say that's the ultimate way things really are
0: uh uh-huh. reifying is from the Latin for oh, thing, yes. which i think is just "reus," and and what it means like th- when you're asking the question is this a thing you're you're asking a question of like is this reified yeah well so um. it's like and so the reification is to say yes this is a thing.
1: It's right but there's so there's a stronger sense of reification. It's so it appears to me as something, right? The computer
0: I'm just I'm just dumbing it down for the idiots listening to this <laughs> podcast. The computer presence
1: is to me as something, right? It's a being. it's, it's mm-hmm. a something that manifests to me. Yeah. But a dogmatic metaphysical approach would be to say like okay to go beyond this being and say, insist this is part of the ultimate furniture of the world. This is how things really are. This is the ultimate truth of Mm -hmm. of being, right? Is, is something about this computer. So there's this drift of like will to power domination of beings that he sees coming from like Plato where, because Plato is like the first metaphysician or something. Um, He sees this trajectory culminating in Nietzsche because Nietzsche has this will to power ontology of like reality just as, like will to power.
0: What is what is will to power?
1: It's just this uh sort of striving to overcome, right? So it's like it comes from it's uh-huh. like his his um Nietzsche's appropriation of certain concepts from Schopenhauer who's used that like uh what what does Schopenhauer think? It's it's like a version of will to power. It's like will to it's some it's some other kind of will, but basically the idea So
0: you use your will to overpower
1: and dominate amass something power yeah.
0: and like overpower, yeah. yeah. Right. So uh-huh. that's by perseverance, by willpower. Right. Et so
1: the idea is that on Nietzsche's view, or one reading of Nietzsche anyway, uh, we're like trying to ultimately everything is just about trying to dominate another or trying to overcome another. That's mm-hmm. what really is going on. And he Got sees it. that as being like the culmination of this trajectory from Plato. So what is technology? Right? Technology doesn't refer I don't know well, technology doesn't refer to this or that piece of technology. It's not a, it's not about beings ultimately. Mm-hmm. Although, well, it is in part, but I'll get to that in a second. It's it's a yeah. horizon called Gestel, which means the enframing. He's talking about mm-hmm. a horizon in which things come to presence for us. As I was saying, like a computer comes to presence in a horizon of my human form of life. Gestel is like a particular horizon that beings come to presence in.
0: I see. And so certain beings come to presence in gestel. the gestel That's right. of of technology. That's right.
1: And the idea is that when some things present, other things withdraw. I think this is what he ultimately mm-hmm. will say like is going on with being is that being mm-hmm. involves the event of coming into presence and the simultaneously the simultaneous withdrawal from presence of mm-hmm. something or other so like insofar yeah. very simple and this isn't a great example but insofar as the front side of the computer is present to me, the back side withdraws uh-huh. from me so it's not presented to me it's temporarily not apparent whereas the front side's temporarily apparent um. So that's like a simple example, but the, what te- what happens in Gestell is that mm-hmm. things present to me almost exclusively, or perhaps exclusively, as um, in as appropriatable as things that I can appropriate for some use, for like for
0: like things that I can use, things that
1: I can make use of, things with utility. Yeah, exactly. So things only present uh-huh. to me as having a utility. And that's, Uh you know, sort of tied up with this, like, converting things and like, oh, how can we, like, make the, like, the LA River or something, right? If you see the LA River, it's totally channelized. It's not good looking at all. So presumably, I mean, there's reasons that they did this but like the architects didn't see the la river as being this sort of like living ecosystem they saw it as something that they could appropriate and turn into something useful for human purposes maybe like channelizing it Mm -hmm. uh reduced flooding for humans or something like that right
0: yeah so this this sounds a bit to me like like modernist i think it's modernist architecture which is only function right like i'm building something and it has a function, and the form doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be pretty. It doesn't need to be artistic. It doesn't mean to need to be aesthetically interesting at all. It just has to fulfill a certain function. It has to fulfill a certain utility. Is that? Am I reading this correctly? Yeah.
1: I mean, I don't think there's a wrong way to, to really think about this, as long as you're oriented in the direction of like, how is this useful for us? How can we make? How can this posit serve as an instrument for our will? Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, okay. So I, I think I'm getting it that because he's thinking this as like will to power, what he's saying is technology is a gestel within which things, the things that are manifesting are we can use to accomplish to accomplish to establish this dominion yeah
1: human tasks human ends Uh dominion is a good one because it's got this christian heritage of like dominion over the earth right i mean like you can think of another one is like if you think if you're talking to someone and they're like i have religious beliefs because uh they're useful for me instrumentally you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like religion is not presenting itself to them in like this normal way it's presenting itself to them as an instrument Mm -hmm. for use right yes
0: so i I do just want to... Oh, sorry. Finish your example and then I have a comment.
1: Okay, so all I was going to say is this is always a perpetual face of beings in so far as like in the history of human life, things manifest as having utility, right? Like in ancient Greece or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, things still were like, oh, well, there's a pile of rocks. We're going to use this to build a temple or something. But the Mm -hmm. idea is this modern uh, and framing of beings is -hmm. such that other aspects of being withdraw or fade away from view and all that's presenting itself Mm -hmm. to us is this like dominating appropriation phase
0: all right that makes sense and so i have a follow-up question but i did want to i did just want to pause because you said oh they're not people are not seeing this religion in a normal way they see it as
1: normal as in what we used would have thought of as being religious even 50 years ago but i
0: think that I think you make a really interesting point because a uh, like so many people and I fall into this trap I too. In fact, Faraz and I had a conversation post interview where we were talking about well what do you get out of religion? Why are you religious? Well didn't and I think a lot didn't of didn't your biopolitics guy people, say
1: like what's religions like function yep, or whatever in society? What's its cash value? I'm so
0: glad you can remember how terrible that professor was. Um
1: <laughs> <laughs> I cut all of that out from the yeah. normal seats <laughs> because he
0: uh yeah his his question was well what's the what's the role what's the utility yeah. of of theologians and to a certain extent I think like theologians and religious people and churches should identify what their role in society is and and ideally not try to fulfill other roles that they're not particularly suited yep. to with that said I think there's a there's such a push to instrumentalize everything that everything has to be useful to us. And I fall into this trap, too. And so the trap I fell into talking to Faraz was and this happens a lot with non-religious people that are like, well, what do you get out of religion? Why would you be religious? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, most people are religious because they think it's true.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, presumably most people who go to church every week. mm aren't like running the, ta- the actuarial tables on like <laughs> the, yeah. the expected utility value or whatever from doing this. Yeah. Presumably most, many of them believe God exists or that like the yeah. Buddha attained enlightenment or, or something, right?
0: Exactly. And so, but I think that increasingly, and this might be where you're going with this, increasingly that the instrumentalist view that religion has to be, use, excuse me, useful to me, everything has to be useful right. to me. I think that that's becoming increasingly common, and even among religious people. Because when we, when Faraz and I talked about this, I said I told him these are the things that I find useful about it, and I didn't just say, "Oh, well, it's like this is what I believe." Yeah. And I just I think it's I happen to think that it's true. Right. Like was not in my mind because I fall into the trap of the the question. I mean, it's not a trap. He's not doing this insidiously. Faraz is trying like, to turn you into
1: a disciple of technology.
0: <laughs> if you know Faraz, I I hope Faraz won't won't find this offensive but for for you for Oz, i wonder if if technology for you in some ways is like fulfills this religious interest or craving or, or role in your life
1: yeah i mean so i want to be clear that technology again because it's about an inframing of beings something about the way that they're mm-hmm. coming into presence for us right something about the our our yeah. our, our horizontal relationship to beings whatever yeah Although Heidegger has, like, Luddite qualities in the way he's talking about this, so arguably he did mm. intend it in this direction.
0: Luddite, meaning, like, someone who eschews or rejects yeah, technology? Yeah, right,
1: so he'll be, like, yeah. living in the black forest with, like, German peasant clothing, you know, this kind of shit. Arguably, there's nothing wrong with stuff like, you know, like technology like... Um, Well, Heidegger didn't like space travel, but
0: (laughs) so, you know, something. (laughs) Fire. Yeah.
1: No, not even fire. Like modern technology, like, like hypothetically things like computers and, uh, Mm. like all this complex technology could be perhaps. Okay. The problem is the way Mm. that it's our life, like our lives are such that things manifest to us in this and framing way. If we could find a way out of that then maybe there would be another way to relate to these technologies with an S, like these beings that yeah. are technological, that would then be like mm-hmm. totally fine.
0: So so I, th- I think I'm getting this, that his suggestion is not that technology is an innate ontological property of certain beings, as you said. He's saying that technology is our, and framing, our gestel of certain beams. technology
1: is an infram- is the inframing is what it's called but it's this uh-huh. way it's what i just said oh, right no but it's this way of things presenting to us it's they're coming so to presence it- as only having like instrumental meaning basically yes
0: and is that is that because that's how they're coming to presence or is that because that's how we are perceiving them
1: um so i think that question he would want to reject because it's basically got the form of like, well, so is this an objective quality or a subjective quality? I think he wants yeah. to get out of the, this way of thinking. So he'd say probably something like, look, it's a matter of being, i.e. the manifesting of beings, but mm-hmm. that's not the only uh, facet of being that there is. There's other ways that beings can manifest to us. It's just that within this in framing, all the other stuff is withdrawing from view.
0: All right. So when you say other stuff is withdrawing from view... What does that mean in the case of technology?
1: Well, I mean, religion's a good example. So, like, the fact okay. that you might be religious just because you think it's true, or like it has some kind of existential mm-hmm. value for you that's not about utility, but it's just like, you know, yeah. something, this is how you live, or whatever. These other facets of uh, religious. Beings or whatever that would present to you like so mm-hmm. like maybe like if you go into church and you see um, if you're in your, let's say you're like Catholic or something and you see, um, you know, a statue of some saint that you are especially fond of. Yeah, there's all sorts of like affects and, you know, thoughts and what have you that are that manifest to you encountering that being some of mm-hmm. them might be about utility, but there are many that aren't obviously about utility. Yeah. The idea of this inframing is that slowly but surely all these other things are being stripped away such that everything becomes about the what's useful for us. And then it's just about mm-hmm. like the the wetting of our wills, as it were.
0: So is the is the suggestion that one gestel, in this case technology, which is what he's primarily concerned yeah. about, is pushing other gestels and ways of inframing out of our Or like reducing them or obscuring them. It seems
1: like I'm not. I'm not that knowledgeable about the other like horizons of of being, Uh like in which things come to presence in Heidegger's thought. But it seems like Mm -hmm. there's more or less one at a given time, like a dominant one, like a culturally dominant one. Mm. Maybe that's wrong. So it's kind of
0: like a dominant paradigm. Yeah, it's like a dominant
1: paradigm. Basically, is is my way Mm -hmm. of understanding it. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it's like a dominant paradigm. And there are these facets of mm-hmm. beings that come to presence under different paradigms that withdraw from view.
0: Mm-hmm. In the face of this larger paradigm. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, sometimes, something, or guess sometimes something will withdraw from view just because, like, I'm in a different position. Like I said, the backside of the computer is yeah. not manifested to me right now. It's withdrawn. The idea is that this inframing, this way of of being in which beings come to presence is sufficiently ubiquitous and there's not really anything we can do about it and it's um beings are denuded of their other characteristics or something.
0: Wait wait wait, so his entire point is well this is happening and there's nothing we can do it's about it.
1: It's not clear to what degree the late Hyder is a fatalist about this. I think I mm-hmm. think it's traditional to think that he's fatalistic but it's it, not clear to me. Um like if, okay. if we can do something about it. He he has some weird quote where he says something like where danger grows or like where there's the greatest is from a poet i think it's Holderlin. where there's the greatest danger like the solution also grows at the same time something like that i think he thinks this is the end of the history of metaphysics like there's not going to be Mm -hmm. another thing like this after it's over or if it's over so, what comes after is not clear. I had a book on like Heidegger's anarchism, which was not a political anarchism, mm-hmm. but like an ontological anarchism, where once this is over, like there'll be no stable principles governing the way things appear to us or something. I don't know.
0: Does he think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I have
1: no idea. I'm not sure that... <laughs> I doubt he would want to use those words, is my guess. But yeah, I'm not sure uh-huh. what his prescription Great. is, or if he has one, or if he thinks we can even do anything uh-huh. about this. But yeah, the idea is... Basically what we've been talking about.
0: But he's 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 saying this is a con, con, it sounds like he's seeing it like negatively. Um, he's
1: concerned about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. He's definitely negative about it, even if he wouldn't want to use like, uh-huh. oh, that's good or that's bad. He is definitely like great. highly great, critical great, great, great. of this. And arguably, I should point this out now, yeah. arguably, you could read this discourse on technology as being bound up with his anti-semitism, right? Doesn't it have a little okay. bit of the flavor of like, Oh, those like Jews are destroying like, like the, this, this, this like thing is destroying yeah. our like beautiful culture, right? It's got that feeling like global technology, mm-hmm. right? It's got, it's got a dog yeah. whistle flavor. That's not the only way to read it, but I'm sure mm-hmm. that, that, that's yeah. something to think about.
0: Well, a lot of, a lot of uh, like uh, far right fascist movements are are about returning to a mythic past, right? That is Yeah,
1: absolutely that's oh. Heidegger. He wants to recover the spirit of the ancient Greeks. D-
0: does he say he that? He says
1: something like that, I think. Or he thinks that like wow. ger- the German language is somehow like secretly closer to ancient Greeks, so it's got a special relationship with being. Like there's obviously all of these fascist tropes in his thought because mm-hmm. he, he was a he was a Nazi, yeah. right?
0: This is such a an interesting point because there are in anti Semitism There and I want to be careful about how I say that. Yeah, please be careful. There are a lot of Yeah, yeah, yeah. People will draw on things with a kernel of truth to make their conspiracy theory more convincing and then like add in, oh, it's the Jews part. So like for example, people, especially nowadays, will be like critical of, you know, there are all these rich people who run our lives and who run the world and have zero accountability. And, like, for that part, like, like I'm totally on board. The Elon Musks of the world, the Jeff Bezos, the people that are, like, absurdly wealthy and make decisions that impact us all, and, like, often negatively, and that's bad. And then the fascist movements and the anti-Semitic movements will slot in, oh, and it's because they're Jewish, or what, I mean, like, those two examples are not Jewish, obviously, but I get what you're they saying. Will, they what will, you're saying is they'll skip over the thing which is like so painfully obvious in front of our eyes and attach this like anti-semitism to it. So Heidegger can have legitimate concerns about the ways that this in framing of technologies or like this particularly in framing and the way it assigns instrumental value to everything, that can be concerning. And then he adds in this like anti-Semitism about this that like, oh, and it's the Jews that are doing this and the Jews that are taking away our like our mythic (laughs) history and past and pushing this this new this new thing, which is terrible and awful. But I can see how people can like appropriate certain things that have truth to them and slot them into their their anti-Semitic and fascist. I mean, I
1: think that there's something to be said about the concept of ideology here from a more Marxist perspective, which is Mm -hmm. like, there's not an agreed-upon definition of what ideology is, but generally it's to do with something like the mystification of something that would otherwise manifest to us. So, I mean, there's a similarity here. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, this thing is withdrawing that would otherwise be manifest because some mystifying function, right? So, like, in the context of anti-Semitism, this is, like, because of the history of Western culture since the time of the Romans and the early Christians and all this, like, complex history of the emergence of anti-Semitism and stuff like this. I feel like from a quasi, like, talking of in framings, like, it's become this, mm-hmm. like, embedded node in the way that people perceive things that obscures mm-hmm. or makes ha- makes hard to detect, like, the actual problems, Right. So, like, okay, there's all of these class issues with respect to, um, like, the ultra-rich destroying Mm -hmm. the prosperity of the country. That manifests to a large percentage of the population who are anti-Semitic – well, maybe not – I don't know, whatever Mm -hmm. percentage is anti-Semitic – as immediately leading them to all of these thoughts about Jewish people. And that has this Mm -hmm. ideological function of causing the problem to withdraw in its more proper aspect, Right. Mm, so see. it's like there's something to the technological analysis of recognizing that some aspect of modern culture whatever its source you know mm. Heidegger, I guess thinks it's somehow to do with like Plato's philosophy unfolding over millennia is mm. um, causing us to try to dominate everything by turning it into like a use value as a Marxist might call it like what is its use for, for us got it rather than accessing that facet of, of what's presenting to us that is hidden by all these anti-Semitic tropes that dominate our attention, given the historical yep. culture we're thrown into. This isn't necessarily mm-hmm. true for like any particular individual. It's just like as a matter of historical fact anti-Semitism mm-hmm. has had a function like this it's it's like hidden yeah. certain things from view in order to maintain you know certain power structures, right
0: That's really interesting and helpful and i um I appreciate how you are tying in that like this this is like like both things are part of his worldview. Yeah. Like and I don't want to, like to ex-
1: I don't want to act as though it's easy to separate out his anti semitism from his yeah. theoretical thought because I don't think that it is. Mm-hmm. But I do think, just given the world that we live in today, like more so than the time he was writing, obviously there's this mm-hmm. inescapable sense that absolutely everything in our lives is just about the utility we can get out of it, or like the utility someone yeah. can get out of it, like what what mm-hmm. like from. You know, from dating apps to board game meetup groups, like everything mm. is based on some kind yeah. of economic use. Our podcast, yeah. So I mean, there's, I think there's something deeply disturbing about this trend. Well, on, on that note, didn't we say we were going to end these episodes with a with a a secret kiss? Oh
0: wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will. I, I'll, I'll cut the part where we remind each other about the kiss and just include the kisses. Fair enough. <laughs> Next time on Dungeons and Dialectics. In the second adventure,
1: if you're looking for a philosophical angle on Mothership,
0: one of the people that was interviewed about this was like, well, yeah, like robots are our friends.
1: One way of thinking about it is in the reduction of all beings, not just human, but like, you know, everything to some kind of use.
0: I think it really helps us understand the themes that Mothership is going for.